Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 1, verses 20 to 25, and then also chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. This is the Word of God. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And then from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. All right. If uh, you're still in the room, second grade or younger, we do have sermon challenges in the, in the back if you would like to follow. And then there are note pages if you want to follow along with a sermon at the back table. Well, Christmas is now another week closer. We have been uh, using for our Advent reflection or Advent uh, time this scripture from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which tells us to us, a son is given. And we have taken that phrase, to us a son is given, and looked at that through the the storyline of scripture, seeing that that promise of a son being given The Messiah is a promise that God has been making at different stages through the history of Israel uh, up until the birth of Christ. We've seen these in these various promises. Two weeks ago, we saw the promise given to Eve that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. So we saw that in Jesus fulfilling that, he was the son of Adam who restores righteousness. Last week, we saw that Abraham was promised an offspring that would uh, receive the inheritance. And we saw uh, Paul's understanding of that, that Christ was the son of Abraham who fulfills the promise so that at Advent we rejoice in the gift of grace. Today we move ourselves down uh, the story of history a little bit more to, to see that Jesus becomes the son of Israel. Now, to, to explain what that means, let me give you a little bit of background. When Uh, Abraham has his son, he has Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons who become known as the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation. 
The name Israel is, is uh, the other name that God gives Jacob. Jacob is Jacob, and then he has changed his name to Israel. But when he, these 12 tribes of Jacob go down to Egypt by uh, salvation through Joseph, they then fall into slavery, and awful slavery under the Egyptians. And in the book of Exodus, we see that God remembers his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and seeks to save his people, Israel. And in Exodus chapter 4.22, we are told these words. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So this idea of sonship has fallen upon the nation of Israel. Israel is saved because Israel has been chosen as God's firstborn son. And so God delivers his firstborn son out of Egypt, out of slavery, out uh, into the wilderness where he gives them the law. And he tells at the beginning of the law, he gives the purpose that he has for Israel, his firstborn son. What does God mean when he calls Israel his firstborn son? He explains that a little bit more fully in Exodus chapter 19 after he has delivered them. He says these words to Israel. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Calling Israel his treasured possession is really synonymous with the words firstborn son. But you see what the purpose was of Israel, the firstborn son of God, was to be on this earth a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so what Israel's job was as God's son on the earth was a priestly role, was to be a kingdom of priests, was to be a nation that would point people to the one true God and would offer reconciliation through sacrifice. That was That was Israel's purpose. Israel was to be the priestly son of God to the world to offer reconciliation. Now, that's a long time ago. And maybe the question you have is, well, who needs a priest? I mean, do you wake up in the morning thinking, you know what? I need a priest. That's pretty high on my list, some priestly help. It's pretty old. It's pretty abstract. But I do think we need a priest. And I think Christmas is a great time to recognize our need for a priest. Um, Let me ask you this question. Why is Christmas Santa's favorite day? Anybody know? No. Christmas is Santa's favorite day because on that day he gets rid of all his baggage. Okay? But what about us? Does Christmas... Get rid of our baggage. I mean, when you come to Christmas, if you've got baggage, and let's just just take off the armor, we've all got baggage. Christmas seems to put a magnifying glass on it. The the broken relationships, the, the strained relationships, the patterns of sin in our life and their consequences all seem to get just focused and magnified When we come to Christmas, all the things that seem to be wrong in our life seem to come glaring out at us. When we start having these plans, well, 
how are we going to celebrate Christmas? Because you know who doesn't want to be with you know who. So what are we going to do? And so we find ourselves tiptoeing through these landmines of, of baggage. And a lot of that baggage are our own mistakes, our own sins that have spilled out and they, they come to a head. Indeed, I think uh, we all are aware of baggage. Uh, let's see, John Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, he starts this famous allegory of the Christian life. He says this, I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place and with his face from his own house, a book in his hand and a great burden on his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he broke out with a cry saying, What shall I do? See, Bunyan is reminding us that we have baggage. And the word that the Bible gives for baggage is sin. And that we carry that around, and there is just no way to drop it. It is a burden that hangs upon us and pushes us down. And when we come to an awareness of that baggage, and when God allows us to see it clearly, we find ourselves saying things, what can I do? What shall I do? Because the baggage is heavy. Do you perhaps feel like this character in Pilgrim's Progress. Does Christmas bring out your baggage? If it does, then the answer to do we need a priest is absolutely. We need a priest who can help us with this burdensome baggage. And that's the good news that we celebrate today in this third week of Advent as we reflect on the fact that Jesus becomes the son of Israel that we need. Because Jesus is the faithful son of Israel, we have the priest who gives us reconciliation, who takes that burden off of our back. So how does Jesus reconcile us? How does Jesus prepare us and remove that baggage? We're going to see today in the the passage that we read that there are three means that Jesus has to reconcile us to God, to be that faithful son of Israel. As we look at this passage, we're going to deal with chapter 2 before we go back to chapter 1. But we're going to try and deal with with what it says. So the first means that that Jesus uses as as the faithful son of Israel to reconcile us is this. He reconciles us by his sympathy. He reconciles us by his sympathy. I mean, a key responsibility, a key uh, characteristic of a priest is that they must be sympathetic. They must care about the people that they are in charge of providing, of bringing reconciliation to. That's their job. Israel was to be a sympathetic priest to the nations as a kingdom of priests. And how were they made to be sympathetic? They were made to be sympathetic because they were delivered out of slavery. They were supposed to be familiar with being an exile, with being a sojourner, with being oppressed. 
Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, instructions that God was giving his newly formed nation, his firstborn son, he says this about them. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Do you see what God is saying there? He's saying, I want you to be a kingdom of priests, and I have prepared you to be a kingdom of priests by putting you through the experiences of suffering under bondage in Egypt so that you can be sympathetic to the sojourners and the exiles and the outcasts in your midst. That experience is to make you a better priesthood to the world. They were to be sympathetic, and God sought to make them sympathetic. But Israel was not the faithful son. It was not the sympathetic nation. When you turn to the book of Ezekiel and you see the charges that God lays against them and for, for why they are being exiled out of the land, that they did not love the stranger, the sojourner, the widow, and the orphan, is cited again and again. They were not sympathetic. They became prideful. And so Israel was not able to, to provide the, the priestly ministry because they lacked the sympathy that they were supposed to have. But God has brought us the new son of Israel through the line of Israel. He brings us his son, Jesus, and God makes Jesus the sympathetic son of Israel also through suffering. And that's what I want you to see as we look at uh, this passage, verses 13 through 15. Jesus is a small child. Herod knows that the king, that, that, that the, he is the newborn king, and so he is full of anger, and he wants to destroy this newborn king. And so he is preparing to send uh, killers to Jesus. And an angel comes to Jesus, and, or comes to Joseph, and tells him, Take the child and flee to Egypt. For there are people out there ready to destroy him. You see, Jesus is this vulnerable, helpless, weak baby boy. No more than one or two years old. He is completely helpless, completely fragile, depending upon Joseph and Mary to care for him and protect him. The mind-boggling thing is that's also God's son. That is also the one enthroned in the heavens. But to be sympathetic to a helpless, fragile, weak, and corruptible people, he took on the form of a baby. He took on the threat of death by Herod. He took on the homelessness of leaving his home and going through the turmoil of moving in the Middle East from one country to another to live in hiding. This is the irony of, of the incarnation of, of God taking on man. He took on vulnerability, though he was invincible. He took on helplessness, though he was omnipotent. He took on Homelessness, though he is the Lord and owner of all things. 
He took on humiliation, though he was exalted. You see, Jesus is the son of Israel who suffered like us. He suffered in facing temptation like us. He goes into the wilderness driven by the Spirit where the evil one presents three powerful temptations. He hangs on the cross where people heckle him. If you are the Savior, save yourself. Come down from that cross. Those are brutally tempting words, calling upon him to break from his obedience, to break from his suffering. But what we have in Jesus is the son of Israel who learned sympathy for us by enduring suffering and by enduring temptation. Why? Why did did Jesus go through this? In Hebrews, we we come to an answer. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we are told this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect, what you are going through, what you are struggling with, the temptation that you are facing, you have in heaven a priest who has learned sympathy by enduring the full brunt of temptation alongside us. And you might say, you know, the temptations I deal with, I don't really think that Jesus dealt with them, those exact ones. But the scripture here tells us that in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. What that means is not necessarily that he has an identity to every single temptation you've had, but that he has experienced the full power of temptation that you have experienced. In fact, he has experienced a greater power than you have ever experienced because of this reason. You have succumbed. You have reached a load of temptation that you could not bear against, and you gave in. The only way that you can bear the full blow of of temptation is to take the full blow and never be succumbed by it. And that is what we have in Jesus. He took the full blow, the full weight of temptation and withstood it. So that he is able to say, yes, I sympathize with you. I know the power of temptation. But also at the same time, his sympathy brings him to your side and says, I will give you that power that is in me to withstand. He is the sympathetic priest. He is the sympathetic son of Israel because he became a baby and struggled and suffered. In Jesus, the son of Israel, you have the priest that you need. He is understanding. He understands the power of temptation. He understands the frailty of weakness. You have a comforter. He knows what you need. He knows where you need to be strengthened. You have mercy. He understands how hard it is for you He does not look at you judgefully, 
He looks at you wanting to bring you the help you need. He is a priest interceding before his father for your specific weaknesses. He is saying, Father, I know the crushing power of that temptation. Send your strength. Keep him from falling. Hold him up. Deliver him from temptation. Jesus, the perfected son of Israel, is interceding for you by name as you face weakness. He's there to encourage He's there to strengthen. He is the sympathetic priest. As we're told in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, these are words for Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Perhaps today you feel like a bruised reed, one that has been broken, and as one good gust of wind from snapping off entirely. Perhaps you feel like a smoldering wick. There's there's nothing but a whisper of smoke coming from you. And you are, are ready to be extinguished. But Jesus is the sympathetic priest who will not let your smoldering wick be quenched. He is the high priest who will not break your bruised reed. He will bind you up and strengthen you because he is sympathetic to give you exactly what you need. And so Hebrews 4.16 tells us this. Because of his sympathy, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is called upon us now that we have the faithful son of Israel? Draw near to him. Bring your weakness. Bring your struggles. Bring your temptations. You don't have to box yourself up and put on armor and make yourself worthy of coming to Jesus. He takes you fragile and smoldering. And come to him and he will give you grace. He will give you strength. He will hold you up. The good news of Advent is we have a sympathetic priest that we can come to as we are, battered and wounded and fragile. Amen? Second, he reconciles us by his sanctification. He reconciles us by his sanctification. When we are aware of our baggage, whether we recognize it or not, we are crying out for our heart's need for holiness. See, holiness is everything right, is everything as it should be, is everything made whole and good and pleasing in God's sight. And it is the absence of those things that our baggage puts in front of us. Our need for holiness is serious. It's not just a psychological need to feel whole. Our need for holiness has an objective urgency to it. Listen to this beatitude that Jesus gives us in in the book of Matthew. 
He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart is, a, is just a way of saying holy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But what if we're not pure in heart? What if, what if we read the other beatitude, the, 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 the opposite of the beatitude? Cursed are those not pure in heart because they will not see God. Those who are unholy will not see God. Only those who have the purity of heart. Jesus emphasizes this again in Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were the high watermark. And Jesus is saying, you have to exceed that if you even want to see the kingdom of heaven. So the lack of holiness is a serious problem. Our baggage points to a real crisis. Because without purity of heart, we cannot see God. That means we cannot have eternal life with him. Priests are called... Oh, before I get to that, I want to say something else. Perhaps uh, you can think about the woman who had the, the flow of blood in the Gospel of Mark. She uh, is, is, with this flow of blood, deemed unclean, unable to be part of the community of God because of her condition. And so the condition required her to live outside, to never enter the community of God's people. She had to live outside and suffer for her condition. She was not able to enjoy fellowship and communion. Her flow of blood reminded her of her baggage and her separation. That is what is a picture of lacking holiness. It separates us. It keeps us from the community. It keeps us from the center where God is. And that's why priests are so important, because priests are to be holy. Priests are to be holy because they represent God, and they must demonstrate to the people the beauty of godliness. The commandment that God gave Israel, their firstborn son, again and again is, Be holy, for I am the Lord your God, am holy. You see, they were to be sanctified. They were to reflect the goodness of God's holiness by being holy like him, a holy nation. Yet they failed in their priesthood. We read in the Advent reading, Hosea chapter 11, that rather than representing God and reflecting God, they went and worshipped false gods. They made the path to knowing God confused and corrupted. And because of that, at the end of that Hosea passage, they are promised a new exile. Instead of going back to Egypt, they are going back to Assyria. Israel, the firstborn son, was not successful in reconciling by, his, by, their, recon, by their sanctification. But that's the good news that, that Matthew wants the careful reader to capture about Jesus 
Because Matthew applies that, that word in Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son, which was speaking of Israel. And he says, you know who else that applies to? That applies to Jesus, who has now gone down to Egypt. The words, out of Egypt I called my son, also applies to him. He is the new son of Israel. He is recapitulating. He is reliving the, the, the story of Israel to be the faithful, sanctified son that Israel failed to be. He goes down into Egypt. He goes down and experiences testing. At the Sermon on the Mount, he recapitulates the law. As you follow Jesus' story, you see him being faithful Israel where in all these other circumstances, Israel failed and became sinful. Jesus is the Israel, the son of Israel, who fulfills the purpose of Israel, walking with God. He is the one who the beatitude is true about. He is the one who is pure in heart, who sees God. He is the one who fulfills the law. He is the priest that when we look at him, we see who God truly is. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 45, Jesus says, Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He is the the fulfillment of the sanctified priest, letting us see God and know the beauty of holiness. Jesus is the son of Israel that fulfills holiness. And here's the good news. He shares his holiness. That woman with the flow of blood, she recognized that Jesus was walking through her area. And she recognized in her heart that if I simply touch him, He will make me clean. He will make me pure. He will make me part of the community again. And she fights through this crowd and touches the hem of his garment. Jesus, recognizing power goes out from him, turns to her and says, who touched me? Bringing this frail woman into the center of attention. And he tells her and everyone else, Today you are healed. Today you are made whole. Today you belong because my holiness has flown out to you and healed you. That is what Jesus, the sanctified priest, does for us. He is the priest who makes those who come to him holy. It's because of the holiness that he gives us that we have holiness. In him, we are not rejects. We are not banished. We are not outsiders. We are not disqualified. In him, because he is the holy priest, we are qualified and we stand and we are whole. We are free of shame and we belong. Because he shares his holiness and he gives it to all who reach out and take hold of him. And that's it. 
He is the faithful son of Israel whose sanctification makes all who come to him whole. He is the son of Israel who reconciles by his sympathy. He is the son of Israel who reconciles by his sanctification. And he is also the son of Israel who reconciles by his sacrifice. Third, he reconciles by his sacrifice. When we go back to the story of Israel, they are brought out of slavery. They are brought to Mount Sinai. They are called a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, his firstborn son. And then, after the law has been given, this this long period of designing and building the tabernacle commences. And the tabernacle is this special place because it is the only place that God ever promised any nation that I will dwell. And he put that in the middle of the camp of Israel. And so the very end of the book of Exodus is the climax. The tabernacle is built and we are told that the glory of the Lord descends and dwells in the tabernacle, in the midst of this people. You see, because God's presence dwells in the midst of the camp, the camp is holy ground. Israel is a holy nation because God's holiness dwells there. Well, what happens when you have holy ground and you have sinful people is you need priests. Because you cannot bring sin into the presence of holiness. And so the priestly duty was to work at at one-ment or atonement, but breaking that apart. The priest's job was to work through sacrifice bringing a sinful people separated from God into God's presence through the the, the reconciliation of sacrifice so that they can be one in God's presence. That's the priest's job. Holiness and sinfulness separating, but through the work of sacrifice is at-one-ment. And that is the priest's job in Israel. Now, why is a sacrifice so So important. A sacrifice means this. That the penalty of sin is death. The reason that a sacrifice is required for atonement is because something has to die to pay for sin. And so that is why the entire sacrificial system of Israel existed. Something had to die to bring me close to God. If something else did not die, then I die for my sins. That's the economy. Now, that's not just ancient Israel. The important thing for us to grasp is that we all need at-one-ment. We all need atonement. Paul says in, in Romans, all fall short of the glory of God. That all is you and me. Every single one of us falls short. That means that we are a stain to heaven if we are brought in as we are. Perfect light cannot mix with any darkness. So the question comes for all of us at all times as we deal with our baggage, what can we do with our sins? If we are going to live a sacrifice for sins must be given. And Israel never was able to give 
the sacrifices required. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says this of the sacrifices. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats was not adequate to truly cover for sins, and the priests were never righteous and holy enough to truly offer a sacrifice for their people. And so the sacrifices that Israel was able to give were temporary. They were, in fact, placeholders until a truly sufficient sacrifice and a truly holy priest would come as the son of Israel to perform the sacrifice that truly forgives sin. And that is the good news. At Advent, that son of Israel has come. Jesus is the better son of Israel. And we see that in Matthew chapter 1 when we are given his name. You shall name him Jesus, the angel tells Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. That is why we call him Jesus, because he saves his people from their sins. At the birth of Jesus, at the conception of Jesus, we are told this. He came to perform a priestly job to save from sin. That is why he was born, because there was a sacrifice ordained for him to provide. And the shock of the gospel is that that sacrifice was himself. He came to be the holy sacrifice, to be the payment for sins by his death on the cross. On the night of his arrest, he tells us, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus knew that he was the priest that could provide the sacrifice that Israel was incapable. He had the sacrifice within himself by the giving of himself to provide truly and fully and finally forgiveness of sins. It is because he became the sacrifice, he died, that we live, that we have atonement. I want you to recognize this because as we deal with our baggage, it is either because we do not know the sacrifice of Christ or we do not believe in the sacrifice of Christ. Because the sacrifice of Christ has canceled the penalty of our baggage, of our sin. Hear these words from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, saying, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I want you to grasp that. 
Jesus is the only priest who ever got to sit down. The reason priests never sit down is their work never ends. But Jesus' sacrifice was so complete and so sufficient that when it is over, you see him seated. Because he has nothing left to do in reconciling you to God by paying for your sins. Second, we are told that because of his sacrifice, you are perfected. Perfected means without limitation, without defect, without baggage. All of it has been canceled. And I I love these words. Your lawless deeds will be remembered no more. In some mysterious way, because of Christ's sacrifice and your faith in him, God forgets the bad stuff you've done. He doesn't think about it. He lets it go. And if God has dropped it, then you are fully permitted to drop it too. He remembers your lawless deeds no more, no matter what they are. This was done for us at the cross. And I love the way that Pilgrim's Progress describes this. We remember the man with the burden on his back. We follow up with him and we read this. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a grave. Just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome, and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow, and life by his death. Your sins are in the grave, never to be seen again, because the sacrifice of Christ has done everything to reconcile you once and for all. I say, if you are dealing with baggage this Christmas, if your sins are haunting you, preach these words to your sins. They have testimony over you no more. They are not even remembered. You have atonement. Put Christ in front of your sins. Praise God, at Advent to us a son is given, the son of Israel that we needed to be a priesthood of perfect sympathy and perfect sanctification and offering a perfect sacrifice has come in Christ. Let us receive the gift of reconciliation this Christmas. And how do we do that? There's two things, two two conclusions. One, Come to him with your burdens and your sins. Come to him. Like the woman reaches for his garment. Like pilgrim comes to the cross, come to him. As we are told in Matthew, Jesus tells us in 1128, come to me, 
All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is asking for your baggage. Drop it off at him, and he will give you rest. Second, it is time we treat Christmas as a time of being ministers of reconciliation. We have the gift of atonement. Let us pass it around. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Do you see what the, the result of this atonement, the result of this sacrifice, is to free you to let go of the baggage that you're holding on for other people and to give forgiveness this Christmas. Let me encourage you to take the time this Christmas to say, I want to reconcile. I want to make peace. I want to say sorry. I want to say, I forgive. These are the gifts most needed in all of your broken relationships. Share them. Give them in the name of Christ. Give them as God's sons and daughters, which the gospel has made you. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.